somewhat of a annual tradition. I appreciate the invitation. I also appreciate the assignment of a text to speak on so that it links up with what you uh, have studied yourself and what you want to continue to look at. Uh, it's perhaps a strange thing to speak on the, this uh, with these words in your mind that no highway is straightened yet, no valley is raised, no hill is made low. But that's the reality in which we live. We live in the continuity of what you have studied in the preceding 11 chapters of Acts, I understand. And next week you will go away from Acts and consider other things. And so this 12th chapter, in a sense, is a partial conclusion of what you must have looked at and considered before. The mention of a highway not yet straightened, a valley not yet raised, hills not made low, ties us to that which John the Baptist spoke of in, as reported in the Gospels, that people should prepare themselves for the baptism of repentance in preparation of that which is yet to come, the coming of the Son of God, of Jesus the Messiah. And John the Baptist takes it from a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, a comforting message to people 800 years before, where the 40th chapter starts with these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says our God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert the highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And further down in the ninth verse, get you up to a high mountain of Zion, O Zion, herald of good news, Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. You've looked at these 11 chapters of Acts, and today we look at the 12th chapter of Acts. It's part of the history of the church. Much of the Bible's teaching as a record of God's word relates to the reality of our human existence. We're told that eternally there is a God who thinks and feels and creates, who then created a real world of things and people, personages, who are different from things in the fact that they are like God, thinking, creating, imagining. That is the mandate of being a human being. Our purpose is to be human and to create to create relationships as Adam did with Eve, to create names for the things that we observe in their distinction that God has made to function according to their kind in regular patterns, not catastrophically or randomly, but orderly. That continues to the reality of this no longer being God's world, but rather one that is damaged. It is his creation, 
but it's no longer the way he intended it to be. There's been a terrible thing, a terrible interruption of the good things that God had made to the present situation in which we are, where death is very real, where life is unfair, we're not to take history as somehow the manifestation of God's will. God has communicated his will through the words of the prophets. They contradict what happens. They speak to Ahaz and say, you are a wicked king. They complain about the tragedy of life itself. They do not accept everything that happens as somehow intended by God. Look at Jesus, the express image of the Father, as he is described in the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews, as one who reveals to us what is on God's mind. He contradicts, Jesus contradicts the illness and death, the tragedy of people's poor relationship with other people. He does not go to dinner when invited to come to Herod's house in order to do a little sayings or to perform some miracles. He says in Luke's, chapter, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, I'm not going to that fox. That's what he calls the king. That's the history in which we live, in this reality where, in fact, the promise of things straightened out, valleys raised and mountains brought low so that the walk becomes smooth is not our daily experience, not yet. And that's exactly what the 12th chapter of the book of Acts points out to us as the preceding chapters that lead up to it. Remember the story of the church in the book of Acts? It starts out with the disciples after the resurrection coming together as the Lord meets with them during the 40 days before his ascension to be with the Father for good, for the time being, but for good. And he comes back and forth, Jesus does, to be with the Father and then to begin again on earth to be with his disciples and then to be with the Father and then on earth as indeed we find in the Gospels reported. For 40 days he did this. No wonder the disciples asked the question, is this the time when you're going to set up your kingdom? Is this the time when the valleys will be made plain? Is this the time when justice will finally reign? Is this the time when things will be repaired? That which throughout the Old Testament people were promised would come one day. And Jesus says, no, not yet. But I won't leave you alone. You will have the Holy Spirit as your comforter, as the one who helps you think and understand what God has said and done and yet promised yet to come. This is what will give you the energy to be my people. And that's what the book of Acts points out to us in the history of the church, how the Holy Spirit comes, that's chapter 2, how the people were transformed to love one another as they gathered for reading of scripture, for prayer, for sharing things together in chapters 2 and 4 of the book of Acts. That's where we find how even the man like Paul who persecuted the church meets Christ who answers his profound question and longing as a Pharisee to serve God by saying, why do you persecute me? I am the one you wish to serve. And the conversion of Paul is part of that book, uh, of those chapters in the early part of the book of Acts. We find the continuing ups and downs of valleys and tragedies and injustices 
in the martyrdom of Stephen, who, before he dies, has sees the heavens opened, and there we read in Acts, one of my favorite passages, that as the heavens are opened, just as Stephen dies in martyrdom, he sees Jesus standing by the right hand of God. You know, we all know that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, but here, for Stephen, Christ gets up to stand to welcome Stephen into his presence. That's the book of Acts. It's wonderful. All the other things, the mission work going out and following in chapter 13 and on, we leave Peter and the early disciples basically at home and we go continue into the missionary journeys, the witness to Jesus Christ of the early believers. But for 40 days, Christ came and encouraged them, stood by them in the midst of hostility, delivered Peter from the prison of the Pharisees, that the Pharisees had put him into. And yet you also have Stephen's sacrifice, martyrdom, as he spoke clearly of the things the Old Testament made clear against the misinterpretation of those Pharisees at his time. Indeed, the book of Acts is part of the reality now where valleys are deep and mountains are high and where the road is not smooth. That is the current situation. We come to the chapter 12 of Acts and we meet again that terrible family of the Herodians. There are three Herods mentioned in Scripture. There was Herod the Great, who had done away with the Hasmonean kingdom and gone to Rome to receive the title of King of the Jews. That's Herod the Great, the one who killed all those babies in Bethlehem because the wise men came and said, we have heard there's a king of the Jews. And of course, Herod thought it was him. Well, he was thoroughly mistaken. The king of the Jews was the one son of God who was born in the stable. Herod was a very cruel man. He did all kinds of nasty things, as well as doing wonderful things in construction projects. For instance, he built up the port city of Caesarea, along uh, the Mediterranean. When he died in the year four after Christ's birth, that's why he killed all the babies up to the age of two, and then he lived two more years, and he died. He was taken, his kingdom was divided into four, the four tetrarchs, uh, and uh, they were divided among his many sons. He actually had been married to four different wives and had children by all of them, and one of them was Herod, uh, where's my little list here? Um, he was Herod Antipas, who ruled over Galilee. And this Herod is the one who married his half-brother's former wife, Herodias, and had John the Baptist's head served on a silver platter. Another element of cruelty, horror, uh, power expressed in the Herodian genealogy. This Herod died in the year 37 after Christ and was succeeded by his son Agrippa. And Agrippa is the one we encounter here in the 12th chapter. It's interesting that at the Metropolitan Opera this season, 
There's Handel's opera, Agrippa, which tells the story of his cruelty, of his lust for power, of his terrible cruelty to, uh, to his citizens. Agrippa lived from the year 37 to the year 44, when he died, as we read, at the end of that 12th chapter, down in Caesarea that his grandfather had built, had constructed. In between, there had been the uh, Antipas, who came to power under Claudius. Claudius was the one who died and was replaced by Caligula, which means little army boot. He was a little child and had a funny name. And Caligula is the antecedent, the grandfather of Nero. So you know, Rome at the time was beset by conflict, by cruel, marked by cruelty, and by the gaining of political power. In this 12th chapter, we then come across this Agrippa, Agrippa I. He is the one who arrests James, who is the brother of John. Do you remember those two disciples, sons of Zebedee? In the Gospels, they are mentioned as being fishermen who were called by Christ to follow him. But they're also the ones who ask Christ whether they could be, have a special place when they get to heaven. And Jesus says, your special place is that you will drink the cup of blood the way Christ had to drink the cup of death. And that's what we have described here in the 12th chapter, that this very James is executed by this cruel king, Agrippa I. Now note well, in the church community of the first book of the book of Acts, where people prayed, where they asked undoubtedly for deliverance, and Peter had been delivered and will be delivered. There is no such deliverance spoken of for James. Poor James. He was caught in the wheels of destruction of a wicked family in his political games and power plays. In contrast to that, in the account that we read in the middle of that 12th chapter of Peter being arrested by the same Agrippa because he had been so successful to arrest James and kill him, and the Jews with whom he had worked together praised him for it, that he thought, I'd do it again. And he arrests Peter, puts him under lock and whatever lock and key, what? Lock and key, threw the key away. Now made the lock so tight that he assigned 16 Roman soldiers, 24 hours a day, to make sure that Peter would not run away or be delivered. That's what a squad is, that is mentioned here. These Roman soldiers were, two of them, tied to Peter by chains, an inside and chamber with the door locked. And outside of the chamber were four more soldiers uh, with another door. And outside of that were another set of soldiers. So Agrippa wanted to make sure that they got Peter and he could do the same thing that he had done with James, working together with the Jews, as many Roman soldiers, uh, 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 kings did, in order to have the appeal to the common people, they took care of their own weakness by covering it up with the seeming power that they, ex that they expressed with the arrest of the Christians. And there you have this wonderful story. 
a wonderful story that while Peter is asleep, can you imagine being asleep facing execution? But in the comfort of his tiredness and of the Lord, and knowing that people would be praying for him, as we read in chapter 2 and 4, the congregation with the people of believers were, had accustomed to do, he fell asleep and slept. And the angel comes and had to touch him. And if you ever woke up after not enough sleep, you know how drugged you feel, how unsure where you are, what's happening. And that's exactly what we find expressed here. Peter is somewhat bewildered, staggering about, not quite knowing what's happening. And the angel says, come on, get up. And then in all the love and care of an angel, the angel tells him, put on your clothes. Don't forget your shoes. It's wonderful. Oh, this attention to detail that Luke gives us, that historian. Remember, Luke's gospel opens up with, I consulted with all the evidence with the people who remember precisely. It's that medical doctor's mindset of looking at details that you find expressed here as well. The details of, don't forget your shoes. Because you think that if you're going to be free, you've got to run and run as fast as you can. But the angel pays attention to the details and the description is so wonderfully precise and must therefore be most likely quite accurate. And the angel takes Peter and as they approach and, and the, 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 the chains fall off without waking the Roman soldiers. And as they approach the door, they open the door and walk through with and the second door opens, and gradually you have the impression that Peter awakens to full consciousness, knowing what's happening. And just as he realizes that wonderful deliverance, the angel disappears. I remember from the early days when I had just become a Christian, the, the record of a German woman who, with her family, was fleeing out of eastern Germany, out of uh, Danzig, on one of the last ships that left across the Baltic and one that was not bombed, uh, torpedoed by the advancing Russian army. And she was a woman with several children and there was a massive throng of people trying to get onto this last steamer to escape the advancing Russians who were known to be especially, uh, extremely cruel. And she had no idea how she'd get onto the boat. And as she was praying, a man walked up to her and said, follow me. And as he went through the crowd, the crowd parted. And she was able to get onto the boat with her children. And the man disappeared. Yes, there are angels. Colossians says that God has made all kinds of things and personages human beings and other powers that he has created to his glory. They're ministering servants of God. They do his bidding. They rejoice. We read in scripture of cherubim and seraphim. There are other personages in the world but ourselves, not in the comfort dogs or birds we take on airplanes, but in other human beings who have minds, passions, who can love and respond and rejoice 
and weep with us. And those are angels, and from time to time, one sees one, as Peter did, but not for long, because that isn't our usual company. Our usual company is being in the presence of God made in his image and the company of each other human beings made in God's image to love, to care, and to be, so forth. But there are times when an angel would come to help. Now, it's extended sometimes in some communities as everybody has their own private angel, their guardian angel, and so forth, and I don't know. The emphasis, however, in Scripture is that what God has made includes also personages that some, most of the time don't have bodies but can take on a body because to be a human being with a body or to be an angel without a body is somewhat a reflection of the kind of God who created all things. And that's why Paul in Colossians talks about angels as also being, uh, being made by God and as being very real and true. Now Peter, once the angel is gone, walks to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, uh, an aunt, I imagine, of Barnabas, who was with Paul, where the congregation in that town uh, was assembled, praying, praying through the night that Peter would be delivered, that we would be safe, that somehow the soldiers would change their mind and become disloyal for the sake of honor and truth and love of a fellow human being. That isn't what happens. An angel comes and delivers Peter. But as Peter comes to the door, he knocks on it. And of course, they're praying, and who would want to be interrupted in their prayer time? So they wait a while, and a maid gets up and goes to the door, and hearing Peter's voice, runs back and says, It's Peter, forgetting to open the door for the man. Oh, what a human reality show of responsive, surprise, pleasure, delight, forgetting the details that surround and make that delight possible. And he has to, they send her back and she opens the door and so forth and so on. But then once Peter has declared that he, how wonderfully he has been delivered, he leaves that place. He doesn't just stay there. He's a wise man. He goes away from the seat of danger because of course, Agrippa would be furious. And that's how that section of the 12th chapter ends. Agrippa is furious. He prosecutes. He takes revenge on the people who have been disloyal to him, so he thinks, who failed in their business, and he does away with them. He kills all 16 of the soldiers, punishes them with death. Another example of the Herodian history of human cruelty. But that's not where the 12th chapter ends. The 12th chapter goes on to say, Agrippa went down to his grandfather's construction, Caesarea, the port, over which he had a reign. He, Agrippa was only in charge of one-fourth of the old Judean kingdom. Remember, he, Herod had divided it among the four sons as tetrarchs. And there in Caesarea, he meets a delegation of people from Sidon, entire cities on the coast of Lebanon these days. And they come and they complain because their food supply in the plains of Samaria around the Sea of Galilee had been cut off 
and they needed the food. And so they go to the king and they wish to have uh, that highway or transport avenue opened up again. Agrippa dresses himself properly in a garment that Josephus describes as being made of silver. Whether it was a uniform or whether it was cloth threaded with silver be uh, uh, strings, as is customary in Lebanon, Syria, Egypt. I just finished a book on a family, a Jewish family that left Cairo in the 60s and came to America. And there the mother had dresses made with this silver lining through the cloth. I remember my mother had that. It was fashionable in the 50s, that kind of garment. Well, you can imagine that the emperor Agrippa, the king Agrippa rather, would make a cloth of that in order to show his glory, his fame. Look at me. I'm wonderful. And as the sun shines on that, the people from Sidon and Tyre are overcome with admiration, blinded by the reflecting sunlight on this silver garment, and they call out, you must be a god. And there's no reaction from Agrippa except to accept that praise. He likes that admiration. He likes to see himself as God or somehow in league with gods or the, with the God or with the gods. And Josephus describes that he had a bad intestinal reaction to the food they served him. And after five days, he died and his innards rotted just as the end of the 12th chapter describes it. Now, the intriguing thing that we can learn from this 12th chapter is that angels don't always come to your help. There is rarely deliverance. There is sometimes, momentarily, for the time being, perhaps for the next six weeks or two years or 12 years or whatever. But as long as the Messiah hasn't come down and abolished death itself, there is no deliverance. Every doctor knows that. They work with every patient in incremental healings and knows that eventually we all die. Because there is no deliverance until Christ comes down, walks down the street of Jerusalem, having put his feet back on the Mount of Olives, as Zechariah, Zechariah points out, and will declare that now he will reign, he will be the king. Not Agrippa. Nobody else is God or like God or necessarily approved of God. So there won't always be angels, but there won't always be deliverance either. Yes, they are wonderful answers to prayer, like Peter being freed from that prison imprisonment, from those metal chains that kept him tied to Roman soldiers. Yes, there are miracles that we can talk about in the New Testament, in our own lives, in the reports of others from around the world over time. But none of them will make the road smooth, level the mountains, and make the path as it was meant to be. For we live, in fact, in the continuity of that early church. We live in the continuity of Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden. We live in the continuity of the unfairness, injustice, cruelty, and so forth that human reign 
as well as the natural world imposed on us. That is our present environment. Oh, how wonderful that scripture tells us that that's not what God intended for us. Oh, how wonderful that we know as a central perspective of the good news that God is just, kind, loving, and able to restore what Adam and Eve messed up and what we all contributed to. That he is able to forgive sins and that he is eventually able to remove all the consequences of sin as well, but not yet. James was not delivered. Peter was delivered, actually, for a while, but not all that long because the church history tells us that he was crucified upside down when he got to Rome. Delivered, yes, but not for good. Delivered from sin, yes, but not delivered from a damaged body or from a human race that is so cruel to each other. That's why I wanted to talk about the promise that Isaiah makes, that John the Baptist repeats, is a promise that we receive and hold on to and allows us to precisely declare, frankly, that this present life is not what it was meant to be. It's one of the wonderful things of the scriptures, of the Jewish Christian teaching, that in fact God does not approve of everything that happens. We don't look at history as a manifestation of what God intended for today. We look at what happened today in light of Scripture to examine carefully what is good, valuable, what we ought to be thankful for, and at the same time what challenges we receive from those experiences to grapple with. As I said, every doctor does. Every lawyer seeks justice, hopefully. Every teacher wants to instruct the students with skills that enable them to understand life better and to be able to cope in order to not be subject to the powers and the flow of events of day-to-day existence, but to keep their distance in mind and in practice, to function, in fact, as God's carriers of information and love and character rather than to be victims of their circumstances or of history or of rulers. That's why Elijah went to Ahaz and complained and said, you are a wicked king. In the name of the God whom I serve, you will be punished. That's why Paul, when he was accused of false teaching in front of the next Agrippa, Agrippa II, uh, that is Agrippa's son, the second, installed by Caligula, why this... Uh, why this, Paul says, uh, when he is handed over to the Romans and the Romans beat him up, he says, you can't get away with this. I'm going to complain about you in Rome, which he did at the imperial uh, court in Rome, where he eventually got after the shipwreck journey. Do you remember that from the end of Acts? He goes to complain about the mistreatment that the government of Rome had inflicted on him. And by the way, I'm sure he made them pay for it too. It is the opposition to evil. It is the confrontation with what is wrong, the very opposite of what you have in other religious communities where you're told to submit. 
The Christian submits to God. The Jew commits to God who has declared to him that he is not the one responsible for the injustice in the world. That God seeks human beings to fight against that injustice. To work cleverly, wisely, humbly, courageously against all that is part of the broken, damaged world. The angels tell us that we live in an open universe, not a closed one. Being made in the image of God with mandates to figure things out and to act wisely and to love rather than treat people with indifference is part of that open universe. The work hasn't been done yet altogether. God works through the Spirit. We read that in the first beginning of the book of Acts as well as elements in the Old Testament. God works through people like you and me. God works through unbelievers as well when they are wise and knowledgeable when they have a sense of justice and compassion, they revolt against merely letting history be that which dictates our experience. We need to create good experiences, loving relationships, seek justice. When I say, God, we live in an open universe, it's something that we must never forget. And it's not philosophical only. It is the experience of being a human being, of not being caught in the circumstances of our existence. It's the courage to create work, to create food, to create relationships, to create forgiveness, to create justice, and to insist on that. It has not been an invitation to just humbly accept somehow as this is God's will. Read the funeral announcements of the majority of the people that die. Somehow they always bend history to approve of what has happened. It has been God's will. It's the right time. God intended him to have a longer life in heaven than on earth, and it was time to go, etc., etc. That none of that reflects the encouragement received by God's word, the prophets, and by God's spirit to fight for life and to long for the return of Christ that walking down the street of Jerusalem of the Messiah at a certain point in history when he will reign for now he does not reign in completeness that's why the resurrection of Jesus is so important because we are not meant to live somewhere else in heaven when we die I believe we're in the presence of God that is peace and comfort but it's unfinished because you can't do what you're meant to do as a human being with a body in space and time creating all kinds of things and ideas and realities. The human being in the image of God is precisely not a part of the natural events but rather to be above that in opposition to what is wrong in approval and multiplication of that which is right and beautiful. And in that sense, the human being is supernatural. We're made in the image of God. To be like him in his image. To have the compassion that Christ had with the sick, with the old, with children, with affairs. The disciples even wanted to keep them away. The courage to speak to bad government, to pray for them, yes, 
but also to use every power imaginable and possible, wisely possible, to resist that which is wrong and to oppose it. Yes, there is prayer as it was in the early church and as you pray. There is prayer and there is uh, for, for thankfulness and for pleading with God. Your significant participation in the going on of history and God hears prayer and he answers prayer. And sometimes he's unable to answer what you've asked for because it's not yet the kingdom when all things will be possible. So poor James died under the sword. His head was chopped off. The way we've read recently or over the last decades, people do still do in some parts of the world. That's what happened to James. Unhappily, just as Jesus said would happen to him, he will also take the cup of blood as Christ took the cup of blood. Peter was delivered. That's wonderful. Both, I'm sure, believed. Both prayed. But one wasn't neglected and the other one heard. God hears all things. Our God is a God who also weeps, who also is furious, who also is unlimited and will bring James back in the body to continue to hold hands, to teach, to enjoy, to cook meals perhaps, to go fishing again with his father. It is the restoration of life that we look for. And until that takes place, the mountains are still rough and the valleys are still treacherous and the land is not yet plain. And not only that in terms of the natural world, I wish the mountains continue to exist, but they will no longer be the problem of avalanches of mudslides, etc., those kind of things. But in our own life, the reality must be understood that we mustn't be frustrated beyond measure before God, but indeed be driven by the tragedies of life and the hardships of life to remember that our God is our Heavenly Father. He has made promises and will execute what is possible. And sometimes things are not yet possible, as we read in Scripture, that Christ could not do miracles in certain places because there wasn't enough faith. Now, one more thing about that. The 11th chapter of Hebrews talks about these wonderful people who by faith did all kinds of things. Do you remember? Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees and by faith went down and ended up in the land of the Canaanites, and then by faith, others went down into Egypt and got stuck there for a while. And by faith, they left Egypt. And on the long march of 40 years, trying to repair some of the damage of, uh, the damage of their unbelief, eventually came into the promised land. Others, by faith, did miracles. But in that 11th chapter of Hebrews, it also, towards the end, verse 38 and 39, talks about all kinds of people who, by faith, because they believed, suffered all kinds of things. James was one of them. He's not mentioned in Hebrews. But Jeremiah is. Tradition has Jeremiah hide in a hollow log and being sawn asunder while he was hiding in that log. By faith. The lack of perfection in the present situation 
because Christ has not yet come. Death has not yet been abolished. Justice does not yet reign is not an indication of the carelessness or uncaring character of God. Be comforted in the fact that we have a God who has tied himself down to be just and loving, compassionate and true and powerful to repair. But history has to, has to take its course. He created history in making us creators. We spoil that history and we have to face the consequences in a situation in which none of us receives what is fair, but everything is unfair. Look at the flood. Debbie, my wife, Deborah, always brings this up when she taught Sunday school. Do you think God was fair that all people dying in the flood deserve to be die, die, deserve to die? Not at all. Do you think that all the people killed in the land, conquest of the land, Peter and we were talking about this coming over, not at all. The Canaanites, all of them, men, women, children, no. But they all lived in the waves following, as it were, the sinfulness of the preceding generation. Children, the sinfulness of their parents. And how wonderful it is that we look forward to the day when the Messiah will come and smooth things out and justice will then reign from one end of the world to the other. What does that mean today in the application to our life? Does it not mean that we need to be careful before we ever say that everything that happens is the will of God? When the prophets and Jesus Christ so clearly say that all kinds of things hap are happening that are not the will of God, just because they happen does not mean that they were intended to happen, except by your nasty neighbor or your boss who wanted to fire you, or somebody in power over you who is resentful that he doesn't receive the loyalty that he expected. That's what Agrippa I demanded of the people of Sidon and Tyre. He wanted to be worshipped as God, as a man of God's own choosing, and he died. It's so unfair in this world that not everybody dies that way. That the, some live long, others live short. Some die in the youth of their time and others hang around. Why did the attacks on Hitler in my own country in the 30s not succeed earlier? Why did so many Jews have to be taken to Auschwitz without being prevented from the catastrophe of the racist destruction that Hitler planned and executed. We live in an unfinished situation where we hold on to the promise of God's character and the details of his promise of Christ's return. In the midst of that, we walk through a wilderness. Rough roads, unsmoothed circumstances and unsmooth life itself. The highway hasn't been straightened yet. The valley hasn't been raised yet. The hill is not yet made low, but it will. Until then, as I put down here as the biblical truth, the way is bumpy, the burden unfair. The reason is sound and the goal clear and glorious. Come, Lord Jesus, come.
Oh, please. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are individuals who love you. We thank you as a community of your people through the ages of which we are a part. We are around now. They were before. They all died in the hope that you would indeed repair the things that you have intended to be good and right and that are so damaged now. We pray, Father, you would encourage us by your spirit to remind us of the words that your, texture, that your scriptures give us of your faithfulness and of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he came for the transgression that we have committed to forgive us our sins as he took us to our, our death on himself so that we would not have to die in your presence. Thank you that he will come again to repair what else is wrong besides our guilt in the brokenness of our bodies, the brokenness of our society, the brokenness of our human relations, the brokenness of everyday existence where we get hurt so easily. We pray, O oh Heavenly Father, for wisdom for those who can indeed speak and act in a way that manifests your glory, free from hate, free from anxiety, free from resentment. We pray, Father, that we may truly be in your image. That is, the image we present would indeed reflect you, our Heavenly Father, our Creator, and our Redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.